And before we hear from the Lord, let's once again go to him in prayer and ask his blessing upon the reading and the hearing of that word. Let's pray together, would you? Let's pray. Our dear Lord, our Heavenly Father, we come again before you. We bask in knowing the privilege of your presence, even now as we worship you together. Lord, we thank you that you have given us a most sure word for our lives. Lord, we thank you that that word is clear, that it is authoritative, Lord, and that it is sufficient for us, for all that we need. Lord, we pray that as we hear your word, that we would indeed be changed by it, that it would have its effect on us, that we would submit to that word. Lord, we ask, as we come to you again, Lord, speak, for your servants are listening. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, uh, 1 Corinthians 7 uh, is a very long chapter, 40 verses. 1 Corinthians 8 is a short chapter, 13 verses, so I'll be reading all 13 verses. Uh, chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians here in its entirety. Please give your full attention now to the word of our God. <clears throat> now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes your brother stumble, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. So for the reading of God's word, may he add his blessing to it. Well, as we continue this morning in chapter 8, we see that chapter 8 indeed deals with an issue that seems quite foreign to us, quite odd, quite strange to us, but it's one that was very troubling to the believers at Corinthian, to the Christians in the Corinthian church in the first century. That issue was whether or not Christians should eat food that had been offered as a sacrifice to idols, a sacrifice to false gods. And that's the question, right? The question is whether, is should Christians eat meat that has been offered as a sacrifice to idols? 
Now again, this is not likely a problem for you in your neighborhood. It's not likely a problem or a challenge that we have ever had to deal with in our day, in our culture. Uh, Most of our neighbors, I think you would agree, are not likely to invite us over to have a barbecue Um, And before they do that, before they put the meat on the grill, they offer in a ritual sacrifice to a false god, right? I would venture to guess that that's never happened um, to you in Fort Wayne. Uh, But the Christians in Corinth encountered this problem. This was something that they faced every single day of their lives. Uh, The city there, as we have seen, as we we began this uh, series through Corinthian, through the Corinthian letters, Uh, It was a thoroughly pagan city, and it was thoroughly pagan, and most of them worshipped false gods, many gods, pagan gods. And so if the person next door was not a Christian, if they were not a believer, he was an idol worshiper, right? There was not the secularism as we have today, so to speak. If they were not a believer worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ, they were worshiping an idol, a false god. And one of the reasons this text seems so odd to us is due to that sharp distinction that we have today um, based on our culture and because of our history in this country, the sharp distinction that we have and that we make between the secular and the sacred, right? The secular and the sacred, the religious and the non-religious. We have the religious on the one hand in our minds, in our culture, in our our actions, in in our acting, and then we have the non-religious on the other. But for the Corinthians, there was no distinction in this regard. No distinction. We have to understand that in order to understand the situation that these believers at Corinth were going through at the time. Everyone was a worshiper. Now, of course, uh, everyone is still a worshiper, whether they recognize it or how overt it might be or not. But in this context, everyone was a worshiper. They either worshiped the true God, the true and the living, living triune Christian God, or one worshiped an idol or idols or false gods. And that idolatry of the Greeks and the Romans, the, Greco, uh, the Greco-Roman reality, these, these gods, this idolatry that they imbibed in permeated their entire lives. Um, it's an interesting study if you look at all of the gods that in the first century that they had, they had a god for this and a god for that, and the Romans even had a god for the baby sucking its thumb. Right? And so there was gods for everything. And everything was interwoven and mixed with and connected to the worship of these false gods. Right? Everything had to do with this. This worshiping of these pagan gods uh, was everywhere. It had to do with their feasts, the banquets that they would hold. It had to do with their social events, their social dealings. It had to do with the worship of pagan deities. Uh, their public actions, the public amusement even had to do with false gods, the administration of justice had to do with these false gods, the functioning of the government, and even the government. All were more or less connected, all of these things, with the religious service. So Christians were constantly exposed to the dangers of being involved in some idolatrous tribute, even without even knowing it explicitly. And so it's important that we understand one of the main things as we look at this and we approach this text is that there was no such thing as a purely secular social meal in the first century in Corinth, right? This was non-existent. There was no secular, neutral social meal in the first century. Any and every time a meal was eaten, especially when it had meat as a component, 
part of that food would have been offered up as a sacrifice to an idol. And so every meal had a religious connection, a religious connotation. Every meal had a connection religiously and this religious uh, involvement. Right? There was no totally secular social meals like most of us have in our context, in our society. Our neighbors also, right? When we, we assume that when they come to have their meals, they're entirely secular as well. Right? That's also different from the first century, right? They may not be a believer, but we don't, don't assume that our, our neighbors are uh, having religious meals and offering sacrifice before their, those meals on our blocks, on our streets. To be sure, the secularism that most of our culture is steeped in certainly is a form of idolatry. But the point is that the secular person, the person across the street or the person next door to you, when they go out to Five Guys uh, Burger, uh, he's not likely taking a piece of that burger and offering it up as a sacrifice to a false god. But he is, nevertheless, certainly an idolater. But there is no idolatrous act of worship that's usually going on overtly in his, his or her eating of that meal. Uh, the food he eats is not dedicated to a false god as it was in the first century. Right? That is how it happened in the first century. If you were a Christian in Corinth in the first century and you lived next door to an idol worshiper, every time that neighbor sat down to eat a meal in his home, part of that meal he was eating beforehand was offered as a sacrifice to a false god. And so the question comes, right? If this, this is a reality of what it was at that time, what should you do if you're invited over to their house for a meal? Right? Knowing that this is going on, knowing that this is the reality. Or what should you do if you're invited to a wedding of one of your neighbors or relatives who has a secular, uh, or, or, or in this pagan context, and the wedding take play, takes place in a temple? What do you do? And a feast for the wedding, right? The banquet is held in the dining hall that's attached to the temple, right? That's how it was back then. Those are the forerunners of restaurants, right? They would have these sacrifices and offerings, and they'd have all this meat. What do they do with it? Well, they set up restaurants, as it were, dining halls next to the temples to, to take care of the meat. They would sell it, and they would eat it, prepare it, and eat it. So what do you do if you're a believer and this is going on and you're invited to these things? Part of that food of the wedding banquet had been offered up as a sacrifice to the god of the temple, the patron of that temple, of the god of that event. Should you participate in that meal? Should you attend that wedding? Should you eat the food that had been offered up as a sacrifice to a false god? Even if you were merely shopping for groceries in Corinth in the first century, this is something that you would have to encounter. This is something you would have to contend with. Why? It's because most of the meat sold in the marketplace at that time would previously have been offered to a sacrifice to an idol before getting to the market in the first place for sale. And that's the question, right? The question is, should you buy that meat? When an animal was butchered, that was the sacrifice and it was offered up to a pagan god. Should you ever buy meat at the marketplace in this context? Because if you did, you were likely buying meat that had certainly been dedicated previously to an idol. And sometimes as odd as theological exercise, we think of circumstances like this, odd circumstances about this or that strange what if. Right? But this was a very real thing for them. I recall in seminary we had to exercises where we had to go through and evaluate various situations that don't really, we don't really encounter in the West in 2019 
But certainly, there are places in the world where this kind of thing still goes on. Right? There are issues like polygamy that have to be dealt with and thought through. How do we as believers, as a, as a village, or as peoples come to faith in Christ, how do they deal with these things? How do they deal with issues like that, polygamy, or issues like this one that we're talking about in 1 Corinthians 8, uh, with food being sacrificed to idols? And they were real daily problems for them, real problems they encountered over and over again uh, in the first century. And so they're greatly troubled by these things. And so the Corinthians write and they ask their founder, right, the planter of that church, they ask the apostle Paul. They're divided, they're divided at Corinth about the answer to how to deal with these things. And so they ask Paul. Uh, some of them on one side said that since an idol has no existence, no real existence, it's nothing at all, there is no God behind that in reality. It's just a matter, a man-made invention. And since that's the case, it doesn't matter if food had been dedicated to an idol or not because it's meaningless. There's no real God behind that idol. There's nothing in the universe that corresponds to that idol. The idol is nothing. And it doesn't, therefore, change the nature of that food at all. Right? This is the side, the, we'll call it the meat is okay side. Right? This is what they were saying. And they would say that the food is not defiled whenever it's dedicated and offered to an idol. So there's nothing wrong with anyone, believers including, eating this meat. There's nothing wrong with them eating it. And that was one side, one side's position about the issue of Corinth uh, that, that the believers took. Um, the meat is okay side. And then on the other side, they totally disagreed with them. They said that to eat food that had been offered to an idol was in itself an act of idolatry. They said that it was inherently an act of idolatry to do so. This is the no meat side. And so in no way should ever a Christian eat food that had been sacrificed to idols. And so those are the two sides of argument that were dividing the church at Corinth. Yet another thing that was dividing them. Uh, and so again, they go to the apostle. They write a letter and they ask him. And he answers he responds to this, right? That's the question. And when you see in verse 1 where it says, now concerning, right? And then he goes on. That's an indication that he's addressing something that they had brought up. He's changing topics and it's a topic that they had asked of him. Uh, now concerning foods that have been sacrificed to idols, right? That's the question, right? Do we partake of the food sacrificed to idols or do we not partake of the food? Is it okay to do so or is it not? So which side would you have taken? As you're thinking about this in your own mind, you've probably thought through this. Which side are you on? The meat is okay side or this idle meat is not okay side? Right? And imagine for a moment, if you're in that culture at that time, which position would you take? Are Christians free to eat food offered to idols or are they not? Right? Yes or no? That's the question. And that's what the Corinthians wanted to know. And so they wanted to know, and they wanted Paul to answer it for them, and they wanted Paul to resolve this question, and so they write this letter to him and ask him the answer. And in chapter 8, it's an interesting thing. We see that Paul, he does come down on one side of this issue. And Paul will be bring it up again in a few chapters. In chapter 10, he talks about this again. But here in chapter 8, he does take a side. But his answer could be a surprise to us. Because he answers, again, a typical Pauline brilliant fashion uh, when he gives his response. And how does he do that? 
We read, that it, we read as he answers and he addresses this question. He seems at first to be siding with the position that believers are free to eat this meat. They're free to eat food offered to idols. Right? That's what it seems like he's saying initially. Paul seemingly initially, uh, he seems to agree with the idol meat is okay group. Right? Do you see that? Idols are nothing, so it doesn't matter essentially is what he's saying. The food isn't changed. The nature of the food is just food. And so Paul certainly does agree with the theology that the idol is nothing and that the food dedicated to the idol is nothing but food. It's just food. Nothing more than that. But the Apostle Paul, we see, under the inspiration and guidance of the Holy Spirit, he doesn't conclude with that. He doesn't conclude with that. And in a sense, he reveals to them, you're missing the bigger point. You're missing the more important question. Right, Because he continues and he says that this knowledge, which some of the believers had, this knowledge cannot be used to destroy a brother or, Christer, brother or sister in Christ who thinks that eating food offered to an idol is in itself an act of idolatry. Right, so do you see what Paul's doing there? He's saying that even though the idol meat is okay group is correct technically in their theology, nevertheless it is in the end wrong because it is contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's contrary to the gospel. Right? This meat is okay group, these people were acting contrary to the gospel. Why? Because their actions didn't build up their brothers and sisters in Christ. And actually, he says, through that action, in verse 11, he says, it destroyed them. It destroyed them. The conduct didn't edify the saints. It was causing the brothers and sisters to stumble. Right? And that stumble, it's a word that we've encountered before, this concept. It doesn't just mean to stumble like to trip a little bit, but to stumble into sin, into idolatry. Right? It's a word that we encountered in chapter 1, remember, we, uh, the stumbling block uh, for the Jews, right? the gospel was. It's a stumbling block. It can be translated as a death trap. But here it means stumbling into sin, causing a brother to stumble into idolatry. And so again, it appears that at first Paul is siding with those who say that idol meat is okay. And imagine that. If you answered that question a moment ago and said, yeah, I'm okay with eating meat offered. That's, I, go, I go with the meat is okay side. Imagine that's your position and the letter comes and you hear it read for the first time or you read it for the first time. This letter from Paul, you're listening to it and you hear the great apostle and he says, yeah, he agrees with you. Right? And you feel vindicated. You're like, Got it right. Got that one right. He's on your side. Right. They would have felt pretty good about that. But in reality, as you read on, we learn that Paul, in fact, does not really side with them because they missed the point. And in reality, Paul offers a very severe rebuke to these people who were, had this knowledge uh, that was without love. And he rebukes them for using this knowledge to destroy their brother and sister in the Lord. Um, and Paul calls them out for sinning against the saints. But not only that, he accuses them of sinning against Christ himself. Right? And so let's look at verse 1 uh, where he begins and he says, Now concerning food offered to idols. Again, this is a reference to a question previously asked of, uh, of the Apostle Paul. He says, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all possess uh, that, that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. 
right? All of us possess this knowledge, he says. What's he talking about, right? You'll notice that it's in quotation marks, and rightly so, it's in quotation marks. This, as we've seen, is, a, is, is a, another slogan, right, that they had asked him about, that they were using, right? It's another slogan, right? All of us possess knowledge, right? And so we've seen a number of times through chapter 6 and chapter 7, he refers to these slogans that they were using, and he corrects them, and he uh, explains for them, and he, he tells them what these things really mean, and they're misusing them. And this is another instance of that, a slogan, uh, all of us possess knowledge, it's in quotation marks, and that's the reason why. This is something that likely the, the meat okay, the idle meat is okay to eat side, that group, it's likely something that they would have used to justify their position. And Paul, notice, he doesn't disagree with this slogan. Right? But what's it referring to? Right? What's it referring to? It's not talking about knowledge in general, but in particular, a knowledge. It's knowledge about concerning idols that some in Corinth had, that idols were nothing. Right? We see this in verse 4, if we go on. <clears throat> in verse 4, uh, he says, therefore, as to the eating of, offer, uh, eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, right? And he goes on. This is the knowledge that he's talking about, the knowledge that idols are nothing, that there's nothing behind them, right? This is the knowledge that there is no God but one God, but the true God, right? Remember the great Shema from Deuteronomy chapter 6. I believe we read it last week for our Old Testament reading. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Lord is one. There is one God. It's the great monotheistic declaration. Right? This is part of the knowledge that he says all possess. And therefore idols have no real existence in the world. They are nothing. It is that knowledge that he's talking about here. We all possess, all of us possess knowledge. And then Paul criticizes this knowledge that they were proud to possess. Right? He says this knowledge puffs up but love builds up right and so we see this contrast here this contrast between love and knowledge right? and it's not as though those are at odds or that you can't have both of them or that one is had at the expense of the other the point is that paul is severely criticizing them he's criticizing that knowledge as it is cut off from love as it is severed from love He's criticizing knowledge that takes them to where they are practicing their rights that is eating certain, certain kinds of food, but they're doing so at the expense of love. Right? Do you see that there? This is the knowledge that he's criticizing and he's rejecting because it's cut off from love. And that's why he says this knowledge puffs up. It puffs up with what? With pride and with arrogance. Right? How is that? It's because they're using it in a way that it's destroying their weaker brother. It's destroying your brother and sister in Christ, the brother for whom Christ died. So Paul says knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Right? And he uses this, this, this familiar metaphor that Paul, is, um, uh, Paul likes to use of architecture, right? to build up. And this is the word that means building up, building up of the saints, Edifying the saints, building up their faith, encouraging them in love. Building them up in love. Love builds up, he says. He says, yes, we all possess knowledge. But Paul says they lack something. They lack the critical component of love, which will build the brothers up. 
And therefore they are arrogant and they are prideful. And that pride is used in a way to destroy the brothers. Is used in a way to bring them to stumble into sinning, to stumble into idolatry. So knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And then in verse 2 he says, If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. Right? It's an interesting uh, phrase. It's something that uh, seems kind of tautological, right? like a tautology. Uh, but what is he saying there? Right? I know that we in our own experience, especially those of us uh, who have children and have seen them grow up and have raised them, uh, or if, if you've not had that experience, you and yourself probably know this being um, you know, intelligent young people. Uh, there are a few things more off-putting in life than the know-it-all. Right, the know-it-all. You've all heard of them. Maybe you, you were one at one time. Um, thankfully, most of us grow out of this stage when we're corrected rightly by our parents to not be a know-it-all. Uh, but sadly, there are some who do not grow out of that stage. Uh, and it's a very ugly thing to see, particularly young adults. It's even uglier to see older adults who are convinced in their own minds that they know all things. They cannot be corrected. And they make it a point of their life to bless the world with all of their great knowledge and correction. Even correcting those who are older and wiser than they are. Whom they really should know just might have something to teach them. Um, and they're therefore unteachable and they're puffed up in that knowledge. And they conclude that that conduct, right? we conclude and we see that that conduct does not express itself in love nor does it build up, right? And that's a general problem that we see, but in, Cor- in, in, in 1 Corinthians 8 here, we're talking about a particular problem, a particular piece of knowledge that in the absence of love does the opposite of building up. It tears down, it destroys. And verse 2 is pretty clear here. Right? We are finite. We are limited creatures. Right? We are limited. Yes, we can have knowledge. Yes, we can have accurate knowledge of things, of many things. But because we're finite, right, we are limited, our knowledge will always be what? Will always be incomplete. Will never be exhaustive. We can never say, I have nothing more to learn. Right? I have nothing more to learn. Those of you who play a musical instrument, um, when somebody asks you, oh, do you know how to play the piano or the guitar, whatever it might be, I'm sure you have an uneasy feeling. I know I do. And I think, well, I kind of do. There's a lot I don't know. Right? Musicians never, never stop learning. You're always learning. And that's true with all things in life. Right? We don't know everything about anything. We are finite. And Paul says if we think we know all things, in reality, we do not know all things. Verse 2 says he doesn't know as he ought to know. And Paul is speaking of a knowledge that is what? Again, it's severed from, it's cut off from love. And if you think that you have knowledge but you have not love... You have nothing. It counts for nothing. Right? Does that sound familiar? Does that sound like something else Paul says in this same uh, letter, 1 Corinthians? Of course it does. This is what we read in 1 Corinthians 13, right? The love chapter. Even though he could possess all knowledge, he says there, but he has not love. He has nothing. He has nothing. And that's what he's getting here as well. And then in verse 3, he says, But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. He is known by God, right? And this is, of course, you're familiar with the words of your Bible. You're familiar with the words of Scripture. 
being known by God. This is a redemptive sense. This is in a saving sense. It's an intimate knowing in a saving way. And then in verse 4, he says, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. Right? There's the knowledge. And he returns back again to the topic of idols and food. Right? And so we see that in verse 1, he introduces this topic. In verses 2 and 3, he gives kind of this, uh, this, this foundational issue or this macro picture. And then in verse 4 and following, he returns to the issue to flesh it out, to flesh out this point. And of course, this is a common way of teaching and responding and um, discussion you know, in, in the Hebrew mind. It's to give the big point up front, and then you flesh out the details. And that's what he's doing here. This bigger point in verses 4 and following. And the bigger point to some is that knowledge without love is nothing. Knowledge without love is nothing. It is destructive. It destroys. If you don't have love, you don't have anything as you ought. Right? You don't know anything as you ought. Um, and again, listen to what he says in verse 4. Therefore, as to the eating of all food offered to idols, we know what that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. Right? This is truth. This is a true uh, this, this is truth. It is true. We know that it's true. We know that it's scriptural. We know that idols are man-made. They're made by man. We know that there is one God. There is but one God alone. There are not multiple gods. There are not many gods. Right? We are not polytheists. Right? We reject that. Polytheism is not true. We are monotheists. Perhaps, again, the most fundamental doctrine of our faith, there is one God. There's a triune God, to be sure. There's one in being, there's one God, monotheism. And the gods that the idols are supposed to stand for and represent, they are what? They are inventions of man's hands and man's imaginations. To be sure, there's a demonic realm out there, but they coincide with what man makes and what man invents in his own head in his sin and his fallenness. And we know, how do we know this? We know this because there is not there is but one God, right? Think of Isaiah, think of uh, elsewhere in the historical books. This, this discussion, this almost mocking of the idols uh, that takes place there. And then in verse 5, Paul goes on and he says, For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, right? And he says so-called, right? You see that qualifier there. And that indicates that they are, in reality, they're not reality, right? They're, they're, they're not reality. They're not real. They're so-called gods. And though there are many entities referred to as gods and lords, Paul is saying here that they are unreal. They are so-called gods. Pagans and all other peoples worship many different gods, to be sure. They have many different lords. This is true. But they are merely so-called. They have no real existence. And why? Right, verse, we look at verse 6, we continue to read, and it tells us, Yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom are all things, and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. Right, this is monotheism, again. This is one God revealed to us in his word. And he reveals himself in his word in three persons. He is one in being, three in person. This is, again, Trinitarian monotheism. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. 
It is that which Paul stands on here in verse 6, and it stands behind what he is saying. And notice he's citing in agreement, again, with which group? The meat is okay group. He's citing in agreement with them. The idols are nothing, he says. So it's okay to eat it. It's only food. There's only one God. The doctrine, Paul says, is correct. You're right. As far as it goes. That's not the conclusion of what Paul says. It's not the conclusion of his argument or his discussion. There was a problem that was causing some of the brothers and sisters at Corinth to stumble over this issue. Not just to trip, but to stumble into sin. Cause them to sin. Some there recognized that there was only that it was only food. It didn't change because it was offered to idols. There are there are no gods but one God. But everyone equally and at the same time didn't grasp or understand or hadn't grown to get that all at the same time. There were some who because of their former association, it says their former lives in paganism and idolatry, right? remember what they're coming out of, this, this, this culture, they are steeped in and participating in this pagan culture. They were saved out of this paganism where every meal was a sacrifice and an offering to a false god. And for them, the act of eating the meat itself was an act of idolatry. And therefore, it was abhorrent to them and it violated their conscience. And there were some who could not get over that. Paul's admonition to them is not, you just need to learn it and knock it off. That's not what he says. Paul is not the cold, heartless, uh, scholastic theologian that he's made out to be by many um, enemies of the faith. Verse 7 of, of chapter 8, he says this. However, not all possess this knowledge. What knowledge? Knowledge he's just been talking about. Not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as it as really offered to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is what defiled. Conscience is defiled. Some had this knowledge, this true knowledge. Idols aren't real. There's one God, but some didn't. Some didn't. And those who did did have the knowledge had it, but it was cut off from love. And their actions and their acting showed that. It was being used to destroy, Paul says, their brothers. They think that in itself, eating the food that had been dedicated to an idol, that that itself was an idolatrous act. And at that point in their Christian lives, they couldn't see it any other way. Paul says that they are the weaker brother. They have a weaker conscience. But again... Notice the tenderness with which he treats this weaker brother, right? The tenderness and the compassion that he treats them with, right? He is not harsh, nor should you or I be harsh. We are to repent of that harshness when we, when we exhibit that in our lives because it is ugly and it is unchristlike and it is unbiblical. He says they could use this knowledge to come to the conclusion that to eat this meat was not an act of idolatry, but for them it was indeed idolatrous because of their former life, because of the former association they were coming out of with all of this paganism and idolatry and sacrificing to idols. And we read further in verse 8. Paul says, Food will not commend us to God, 
We are no worse off if we do not eat, no better off if we do. Right? And so this is the classic place where Paul offers what is called technically, he says it's adiaphorous. It's neither good nor bad. It's neutral. It doesn't matter. It doesn't commend us to God. We're not worse off. We're not better. And we know from elsewhere uh, in Scripture as we read, we know that the kingdom of God, in agreement with this verse, verse 8, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking, but of what? Of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Eating or not is a matter of indifference. It is adiaphora. It doesn't change our religious standing or our religious status, whether we eat or not. And that's true. Paul says it's true. But he says this in verse 9. Again, being the tender, compassionate, Christ-like, spirit-wrought words that he says. He says in verse 9, But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Is it a right that they have to be able to eat this meat? Yes, absolutely. Paul doesn't deny that. They had the liberty to eat the food. What he's saying is that they could use that liberty in such a way that would become a stumbling block, an occasion, a tool to lead the weaker brother into sin. Again, not just tripping, but causing them to fall into sin. Paul says you're not to exercise that liberty, this right you have. You're not to exercise it in such a way that it causes your brother to fall into sin. And then notice how Paul gives us an example of how that might happen. In verse 10, he gives an example. He says, for if anyone sees you who have knowledge, right, there it is again, eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? Right, and then we see the very serious results as we read in verse 11. And so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. Then he says, the brother for whom Christ died. I think this is important to the Apostle Paul. I think this is significant. This is not a little issue. Right? He says, your brother, by your knowledge, this weaker person is destroyed. This brother for whom Christ died. This weak person, as a result of your lack of love, they are treated as despised by the actions of those with knowledge. Carelessly doing this, leading them to destruction. This is your brother, he says, for whom Christ died. Right, do you see that? Do you see the weight of that? Their actions are the opposite of the gospel. They're contrary. They're opposed to the gospel. It is irrelevant that their knowledge is technically correct. Right? It didn't matter. Why? Because of the results of that knowledge. Because that knowledge was leading the brother for whom Christ died to be led into sin and destroyed. Right? That is morally harmed. His conscience is defiled by these actions. So dear Christian, dear brothers and sisters, this is something that every one of us, right, starting with myself included, we all need to be very, very careful of this. To never do this. Right? It is not sufficient that our knowledge is correct. 
It is not enough that we have true knowledge of the word. Right? We must never use this knowledge contrary to the gospel. Can that be done? Yes, it can. We, Paul's correcting them for doing so right here. Can we contradict the gospel we confess by the things that we do? Oh, yes, we can. We can indeed. You recall, and I mentioned it, and I quote this again and again, but remember in Ephesians chapter 4, right, verse 15, we have both sides of this. It says, speaking the truth in love, right? The truth in love. You've got to have them both. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, is the head into Christ. But it's speaking the truth in love. Were the meat okay folks correct in liberty? Yes, they were. Were they right in charity? No, they were not. They were dead wrong. And look again at the weight of Paul's statement here. And again, it's, it's terrifying. It's heartbreaking to Christ's sheep. Again, knowledge without truth. Knowledge, I'm sorry, without love. Uh, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed the brother for whom Christ died. And then he goes on in verse 12. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak. What? He says, you sin against Christ. You sin against Christ. It's devastating. It's devastating. This is a reminder, a warning to all of us again, brothers and sisters. So Paul is not siding with the meat is okay, folks. Rather, he is sternly rebuking them. And then in verse 13, he ends. He says, therefore, in food, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Right? That's how severe he takes it. That's how serious he takes it. It's going to make my brother stumble. I'll never do it again. I'll never do it again. Again, stumble there means to fall into sin. Right? To fall into sin. And this is important. It's a, I, I came across this... Um, not having grown up in an evangelical church or as a believer uh, in, in, in my growing up, I wasn't aware of this, but as I've talked to people and as I've read commentaries, um, it was very interesting. I came across this a lot. Uh, stumble there means to fall into sin. It does not mean, as many, many people contend that it does, uh, and as many people that I read say that it does, it does not mean if food offends my brother. That's not what it means. It means if food makes my brother to fall into sin, right? Being offended and falling into sin are not the same thing. It doesn't mean doing something that offends your brother or sister in Christ. It's talking about, it means doing something that causes your brother or sister to fall into sin, to stumble into sin. You do something that causes them to commit an offense. It's not as if they might take an offense, but they might commit an offense by the action that you're taking. Right, And that's a, there's a difference there. And Paul says that if that's the case, I will never eat meat again. And that's the position Paul takes. And it's a position that we should take, dear Christian. And we should because it is a position that aligns with the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we think about these things. And very often when we are reading the epistles and we're reading the letters of the New Testament... Right? Even in those, you know, even the New Testament, it's not just uh, like when very often when we read in Leviticus or Chronicles, right? Even in the New Testament, sometimes we read 
when we understand, uh, when we think we grasp something, but some things can seem so abstract or so removed or far from our own experience, right? And we think about these things. Do you feel that way at times? Like you're reading it and you don't know how to connect it to your, to your life and uh, it seems so far away. Food sacrifice to idols, right? Again, our neighbors probably aren't doing that. Our brothers and sisters in other places and cultures in the world certainly still do face these kind of problems. But probably the person across the street is not bleeding out a goat in the backyard before, uh, making an offering before he uh, uh, puts it on the barbecue, right? It's probably not going on. But even at the specific point Paul is addressing is not one that we face in Fort Wayne in our day. The principle that the text gives the text gives transcends all cultures and times, and it applies even to us here in Fort Wayne in 2019, brothers and sisters, and it is relevant for all of us. We can never use the knowledge that we have in such a manner, in a manner that contradicts the gospel by our actions. Right? If your knowledge that you have, even if it's right knowledge, is leading you to act in an unbiblical way, in a manner that's contrary to Christ and the gospel, uh, it's wrong. It's a problem. And that's the point. We must always be mindful. And I know it can be hard. And again, I start with myself confessing and repenting about this. Right? Knowledge is not the summa bonum, right? the greatest good. If it has not love... It's easy, right? I know, especially in our branch of the Christian family tree, it's easy to be so excited and enthralled and geeked out in high, glorious, consistent theology that we love that we forget about the love that should be flowing from that theology, right? The love that should be reflexively flowing from the effect that, that theology should have on our lives and our hearts and our souls. And we can encourage through our knowledge and our liberty, we can encourage our brothers and sisters for whom Christ died to fall into sin if that love is not flowing, it's not attending that knowledge. And our hearts, brothers and sisters, should be shattered at the thought of that. Right? It should crush us when we realize that that is going on. And so we must always be mindful that what we know is true. Not every believer knows or realizes is true. Right? We must love our brothers and sisters, regardless of where they are on the spectrum of the perfecting of their theology. Right? We must love them. And so we can never use the truths of God's word in a way that would destroy them, that would cause them to sin, that would defile their conscience of our weaker brother, the one for whom Christ died. And so having said that and got that out of the way, we need to acknowledge one more thing that's also important. One more thing. This text does not mean that you can never do anything that would offend your brother or sister in Christ. Right, and that's something that will always be going on in this life. Right, We will always, um, in some way, uh, explicitly, implicitly, uh, deliberately, subconsciously, we will always be taking offense and always be offending um, our brothers and sisters, those whom we love and would die for, right? This is because the nature of who we are. We are sinners together in a fallen world. We will never come upon a time when we will never offend one another on this side of glory, right? People take offense 
uh, at all manner of things, right? either uh, sometimes rightly and sometimes wrongly. And certainly we never want to purposely or deliberately do things that cause offense. But my point is that there is a difference between causing someone to fall into sin and offending someone. Those are different things. One is very different from the other, and we should never use our knowledge to cause anyone to fall into sin, to stumble into sin, and we should be aware of this. We should be aware of this. How are we aware of this? It's having a heart of love, right? It's being loving. It's being sensitive to uh, our brothers and sisters. And so let us remember, brothers and sisters, and, and listen to me on this. Jesus didn't just die for those people he's talking about who are being offended, or the people who have a knowledge devoid of love that Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Right? He died for you. He died for you, his people. He died for us. Right? He died for us. He gave his life for you, brothers and sisters. And I want you to remember that as we come to the table of the Lord. Right? Remember that as we come to his table. And as you hold the bread and as you hold the cup, remember, as you consider your Lord, and the people for whom he died, remember your obligation before them and before him as his people. And as you realize, as you're remembering and as you're meditating and contemplating on those things, and as you realize your gross failings, right? Even as I remember my gross failings in all of this, I want you to remember that he is not only the one who commands you to be mindful to love your brothers and sisters, but remember, dear Christian, he also gives you the mindfulness and the love and the care and the consideration and the empathy and all the rest. It comes from him. These things are not born out of your own trying or your own moralizing efforts from your own inky, sin-stained black hearts. It's not where they come from. You can't give what you don't have. They arise only from our glorious Savior, They arise from the glorious Holy Spirit residing in you. You who have, a trust, who have entrusted yourselves upon the one, the only Redeemer of man for all of your lives, this one and the next. Consider these things as we approach the table, dear Christian. Think upon them and your failing, yes, but think of his provision. Remember your king and your God's greater accomplishment and promise to lead you to grow and to love and to care and to hope and to assurance and to confidence. And as you do, rejoice and be changed by this powerful triune God who promises to always be with you and to care for you. Let us rejoice and give him praise again and praise afresh for all that he's done for all of our lives.